History this week, September 10th, 2002. I'm Sally Helm. The thieves weren't even after the seeds. When they break into basements in two places in Afghanistan, the town of Ghazi and the city of Jalalabad, they find plastic containers sitting on shelves. Containers of seeds. Seeds for wheat, barley, chickpeas, lentils, melons, pistachios, pomegranates. Some of the particular varieties don't exist anywhere else. But these thieves aren't looking for rare breeds of wheat. What they want is just those plastic containers. So they dump the contents, take the containers, and leave. With that, a critical agricultural resource is gone. Extinct. Afghani conservationists announced the loss on September 10th. And word makes it to a man named Kerry Fowler. He's a researcher who has been fighting for decades to protect the world's seeds. And Fowler knows better than anyone what terrible news this is, not just for Afghanistan, but for the whole world. He's devastated. It was a bit like being hit by multiple rounds of a shotgun in a way. You feel like you're just being hit in all parts of your body. And it was the buildup of pain and, to some extent, anger. This just had to stop. Today, a race against time to save the world's seeds. What the seed vault does is, to some extent, solve a major world problem and solves it forever. How has an international coalition of conservationists managed to stockpile millions of seeds deep inside a mountain right below the North Pole? And why might those seeds, this is not an exaggeration, be the key to protecting the future of humanity? Svalbard has more polar bears than people. It's a group of islands north of mainland Norway. Average high temperatures in this region of the world reach 43 degrees Fahrenheit in July. In February, the high is usually more like eight degrees. We usually go to Svalbard in the winter time. That might strike people as an odd time to go, but I think it's the most beautiful and interesting time of year. Carrie Fowler has been to this part of the world many times because just north of Svalbard's main town sits Plateau Mountain. And inside Plateau Mountain sits a vault containing his life's work. When you drive up to the vault, you're driving up a, a long winding road on the mountainside and there are no trees or bushes or anything growing on the mountain. It's flat at the top and sticking out of it, jutting out of the middle and the side of that mountain is this wedge. It's just a triangular-shaped wedge. It's mostly made of gray concrete. But there's a green and blue light above the entrance. It's made with metal plates and LEDs, but it looks sort of like stained glass. And it glows very softly in the winter night. 
you know, as you'd walk up to the entrance, the wind is probably blowing, so maybe your teeth are chattering. You're probably hearing the hum of refrigeration units. You walk over a metal bridge. It's there partly to create some wind so snow doesn't block the door in winter. It's a pretty heavy door, so you're going to have to pull on it a bit. And when you open it, pretty quickly, you're going to be looking down a very long tunnel. It goes on for almost 400 feet. As you walk, the air gets colder and colder. When you look up, you can see tubes that carry refrigerated air deeper into the mountain. And all of a sudden, you go from a tunnel where the ceiling isn't that tall, and then you're in what I've always called a cathedral room, which is large, and the, the ceiling is very high. It's, it's an emotional feeling, actually. Um, it can be awe-inspiring. In the walls of this room, chiseled out of solid stone, are three sets of doors. And the one in the middle is crusted with ice crystals. <laughs> So you can tell that something different is going on there, that it's really, really cold. Beyond that icy door are the seeds. This is the agricultural legacy of 12, 15,000 years of an unbroken, successful evolutionary change from the beginning of agriculture to this day. That's how those seeds actually got there. All that evolutionary history is stored in a warehouse, in boxes, on shelves. Right at the front happens to be the seed collections from Canada, and you'll see a little Canadian flag with a maple leaf on it. But you'll quickly also see flags and other insignias and logos from institutions around the world. And you soak in the fact that this is something that's involved a lot of people, um, including our ancestors. This is the Global Seed Vault. Seeds are simple things, but fundamental. All of humanity depends on seeds, a few inches of topsoil, and an occasional rain. I mean, we we don't just eat chickens and pigs and goats and cattle, and they don't eat each other. They eat plants. So our entire system is based on flowering plants, on seeds. Seeds turn into food, food that ends up on the plates of everyone in the world. Without seeds, we would very shortly have a global food crisis. Luckily, we have a lot of seeds. Seeds for apples and potatoes and wheat and corn and romaine lettuce. But it's not just that we have seeds for each individual crop. Just as important, there is a huge amount of genetic diversity within each crop. We can see a tiny sliver of it when we go to the grocery store and we can see different varieties of apples and some are yellow and some are green and some are red. Fowler actually has his own apple orchard. He grows apples that smell like strawberries, tiny apples that show up in hundreds on the tree. I'm telling you, it looks like somebody overdid it with a Christmas tree. (laughs) I don't think we typically realize just how much diversity there is for some of our crops. I decided to guess how much there is for just one crop. Okay, so how many types of rice are there? I know there are at least like 
20 in the grocery store. So I got to say there's way more in the world. So maybe like, I don't know, are there 150 types of rice? Well, you know, in a way I can, I'll give you partial credit for that answer as an (laughs) old professor. There are probably more than 150,000 types of rice. I'll just figure you forgot the the final three zeros. (laughs) And it isn't just that there's brown rice and white rice and wild rice and sticky rice. There's also important genetic diversity that we can't necessarily see. Some rice can grow in semi-arid conditions and other rice can grow under 15 feet of water. Well, that takes a very different kind of uh, genetic makeup to to be uh, successful in those different environments. Now, a rice farmer obviously isn't growing those two types of rice on one farm. But many farmers do have a lot of genetic diversity in their fields. Lots of slightly different mutations of rice that have been cultivated and bred by farmers and also arisen naturally over decades, even centuries. This especially applies to small-scale farmers who use traditional agricultural methods, saving their seeds from year to year. On bigger industrialized farms, it's often just one variety of rice, sometimes grown from seeds specially made by scientists. Plant breeders are trying to produce these modern varieties that are very high-yielding. Why? Well, because they're high-yielding and the farmers like them. Not just farmers, also eaters. Thriving crops are good for everyone. And so if a wheat farmer hears about a new variety of wheat that's growing really well, then it probably makes sense for them to try and get some of those seeds and start growing that type of wheat. A farmer will make a very rational decision and grow the variety that's most productive on his or her farm. The problem is, if the farmer decides to adopt the modern variety, which is genetically uniform, the farmer may decide that uh, instead of saving those older wheat seeds for planting next year, uh, the farmer will save them and put them in a bowl of porridge and eat them up. If that farmer's field contained any kind of diversity, then that is lost and it's lost forever. And we might really miss it someday. Because genetic diversity from random mutations or from intentionally crossbred crops. They are really important for helping crops survive new threats. Sometimes a particular genetic variation of a crop will turn out to be especially good at resisting drought or flood or insects or disease. If you're going to have a rice or wheat variety in the future that's resistant to a certain bug, Well, where is that going to come from? It's not going to parachute from the skies because we'd like it to be that way. It's going to come from the diversity that's found within rice and wheat. So if there is no diversity and a new bug comes on the scene, we might have a problem. Farmers saw this in a big way in the late 1990s when a disease began killing wheat. It was called wheat rust disease. This is a variant of a disease that's actually described in the Old Testament of the Bible as causing famine. And this new wheat disease came up in Uganda in 1999 and quickly started spreading. And there were no modern varieties of wheat in the field that were resistant. 
Epidemics of wheat rust had happened in the past, but this new version spread from Uganda to Kenya, then blew across the Red Sea to Yemen. There were fears it could hit fields in China or India. Scientists were scrambling for a cure, and they went looking for genetic diversity, hunting for an older variety of wheat that might be able to withstand this biblical disease. Eventually, they found one. And they were able to breed them into the more modern varieties of wheat so that we didn't have crop failures. That would have been a global food crisis, by the way. Crisis averted. It wasn't the first time. We avert catastrophe more frequently than you would be comfortable knowing. There have been close calls for years. Way back in the 1970s, Carrie Fowler read an article by a scientist named Jack Harlan, and it scared him. Harlan said, we had already lost so much important genetic diversity. Any kind of diversity that was going to give disease and pest resistance down the road was gone forever, sort of like the dinosaurs. But Harlan also talked about a solution. Collections of seeds saved for posterity. He wrote, These collections, they stand between us and catastrophic starvation on a scale we cannot imagine. Quickly, I realized, oh my gosh, this is a terribly important resource for humanity, and it appears to be terribly in danger. Right there, Carrie Fowler discovered his mission. To save the world's seeds before it's too late. The father of seed banks, one of Carrie Fowler's inspirations, was a Soviet botanist named Nikolai Vavilov. He started storing seeds in Leningrad in the 1920s. He saw how important genetic diversity was for keeping the world fed. In the early 1940s, Vavilov ran afoul of the Soviet government and was imprisoned. Meanwhile, in 1941, the Nazis had invaded Leningrad. The city was under siege, and people were starving. And I think 600,000 Russians died during that siege. People were resorted to eating soil. Vavilov's co-workers had locked themselves inside the seed bank, protecting the collection, some 370,000 seeds. They knew how important those seeds were, especially given the war. They could be used to regenerate agriculture when peace finally came. And so these scientists were willing to make great personal sacrifices to save the seeds. At least 12 died of starvation. The curator of the rice collection at that institute died of starvation, sitting at his desk with bags of rice on the desk. Imagine that. So rather than eat all these seeds, which they usually could have done, they didn't. I talked with a woman there. She said to me, well, we were students of Vavilov, and we thought the world was going up in flames. And what was in this building was going to help rescue the world. And uh, just an incredible act of heroism. And I, I got to say, that that's kept me going over the years. 
When Carrie Fowler got involved with this issue in the 1970s, he discovered a whole world of regional, national, and international seed banks. People in many countries storing the genetic diversity found in their farmers' fields. If the seeds could be stored safely, then that genetic diversity would be protected. But things didn't always go perfectly. Realize that seed banks are in buildings, and so they're vulnerable to anything and everything that can happen in a building, like a fire or a flood or equipment failure. I used to have a file on my computer called Gene Bank Horror Stories, and it was just a little prompt for me of the kind of things that can go wrong. Seed banks are just really underfunded. Fowler remembers visiting one in the 1990s. Usually when you go into a gene bank, you're going into something that's like a freezer. And I walked into this one gene bank and it was, let's put it this way, hot as hell. (laughs) And what had happened was the refrigerator unit had, had just simply failed. I went into another gene bank and it was so poor that they they had it locked, but they couldn't find the key. There have been dramatic incidents that destroy seeds, like huge floods and mundane ones. Seeds get misfiled or lost, like a book at the library. And then sometimes war and conflict and global politics end up threatening seed banks. That's what happened in Afghanistan in 2002. Those seeds were stolen out of basements during a time of intense political upheaval, soon after the U.S. invasion. And actually, it wasn't the first time something like this had happened in Afghanistan. An Afghani collection had actually been destroyed, I think, about 10 years before. After that incident, scientists had worked to rebuild the collection, going out into the fields to get seeds from farmers. Afghanistan is a really unique country. Its agriculture is very traditional. A gigantic amount of diversity of the crops that are native to that area. That would be wheat, um, lentils, chickpeas, fava beans and such. This time, the scientists tried to safeguard the seeds themselves in places they thought would be safe. Instead of putting it in one central place that would make it very vulnerable, They kind of farmed it out, if you will, to scientists and staff members who put it in their basement or maybe in their fridge and their freezer in their kitchen. So they didn't have all their their eggs in one basket, so to speak. But still, that, that wasn't enough. Key gene bank locations got raided. The plastic containers stolen, the seeds dumped. So that was an extinction event. Each time Carrie Fowler heard that seeds had been lost, he would feel it. He'd been working for an international agricultural resource center helping to manage seed banks. And he said, the news from Afghanistan was one of the things that got him thinking about a new idea. A way to make sure that these extinction events would stop happening. The idea we had was, let's take a duplicate copy of all these seed collections in the world and let's put them in the middle of a mountain in the middle of nowhere near the North Pole where it's gonna be really cold. And if you wanna conserve seeds for a long time, you freeze them. So that was, that was basic idea. It's a pretty simple idea, really. Simple in theory, but in practice, obviously there was a lot to think about. Fowler had to figure out management, operations, and 
Most importantly, he had to make sure that countries were on board to put copies of their seeds into a global seed vault. At this point, Fowler had a lot of contacts in the seed bank world. So he made a list of people to call, a long list. I thought, well, gosh, if we just get two thirds of that group, uh, it'll it'll be worth it. He starts dialing countries around the world, making his pitch. The way it was gonna work was like a safety deposit box. You send us your seeds, we'll do the best we can at conserving them. Here are the conditions we're gonna provide and we're not gonna claim any ownership over them, neither physical property nor intellectual property rights or anything like that. And if and when you want your seeds back, you've got them. So if anything happens in your seed bank, you've got a spare copy here. I think I must have talked to about 25 or 30 gene bank managers and every one of them had said yes. And so now he thinks this really might happen. He's ready to make a formal pitch to the government of Norway. They control the land where he thinks the seed vault should be. And he's also asking them to help pay for it. So he walks into the office of the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. He sat there listening to me, and I must have talked for about 20 minutes. And then finally, um, I figured I'd better stop. And he looked at me and said, well, let me ask you this. He said, are you telling me that this is one of the most important natural resources on Earth? I said, well, yes, it, it, it certainly is. And he He looked down and nodded his head a few times and thought about that. And then he said, and are you also telling me Svalbard is the best place in the world to conserve that resource? And I said, "Um, yes, we, we think it is. And then he looked at me and he sort of turned his hands up in the air and he said, well, how can we say no? In 2007, construction begins. No architect had ever built anything like this. And it's, it's not easy building something inside a mountain where you can't actually see the walls <laughs> from the outside at least. But once the construction started, it didn't really take very long. They brought up big tunneling machines from mainland Norway, and they just made a tunnel. The entire facility is basically a tunnel. About a year later, in 2008, the global seed fault is ready. And not a moment too soon. Fowler had been in conversations with a friend of his who worked at an international seed bank based right outside Aleppo, Syria. It had an amazing collection. One of the biggest and best crop diversity collections in the world, mainly of of wheat, barleys, lentils, chickpeas, fava beans, and grass pea. And that Institute was doing a lot of plant breeding, particularly focused on creating good yielding varieties for harsh, dry, hot conditions. That year, 2008, the Arab Spring is beginning to unfold. Fowler tells his friend at the seed bank in Syria, it seems like you're about to see some conflict. And I said, well, we ought to get your collections up to Svalbard quickly, just in case. And we were good friends and he And he kind of laughed. He said, okay, let's do it. And so we sent boxes and packets and everything. And I think the last shipment went out about two weeks before 
really all hell broke loose. That international seed bank gets caught in the crossfires of this conflict, and the seeds are lost. But because duplicate seeds have already been sent up to the global seed vault, that genetic diversity does not disappear. It's safe. And this is especially important because of those crops Fowler mentioned that can thrive in hot, dry climates. Hotter, drier climates are becoming the new norm all around the world. If you look at the most recent data, June was, get this, the 426th consecutive month in which the monthly global temperature exceeded the 20th century average for that month. 426 consecutive months without a break of a quote-unquote above average temperatures for that particular month. These hotter conditions put a strain on food production. We're facing dramatically new climates and in the future the coolest and therefore best growing seasons of the future will actually be hotter than the hottest growing seasons of the past. So these are gigantic challenges, and I don't know how we meet any of those challenges without crop diversity. We will need crops that can thrive in hot weather and that can withstand extreme weather events like flooding or drought. Otherwise, we won't be able to grow food. Let's be very frank about it. If agriculture doesn't adapt to climate change, neither will we. And we can talk all we want about solar roof panels and everything else, all that's good. But in the face of food shortages, our other measures to deal with climate change are going to go down the tubes. Fowler says we need to be breeding new crops now. It can take 10 to 12 years to get a new crop variety just right. Much longer for some crops, by the way, bananas, maybe double that. Their future is in our hands to take that diversity to help our crops adapt to the conditions that we know are coming, and in fact, are already here. The Global Seed Vault, Carrie Fowler's legacy, is one very important way that we can prepare right now. Those millions of seeds from dozens of countries are sitting in boxes, on shelves, behind that icy door. The very first time I set foot in the room with the seeds after it was really finished was just a sense of quietness. And um, it is a almost a deeply spiritual kind of event to go down there. I have seen people come out crying because it is very moving to get the feeling that as far as possible, uh, you know, there are no guarantees in this world, but as far as humanly possible, Here's a lot of biological diversity that will never become extinct. Or so we hope. The seeds in this vault, which are essential to helping us survive on a warming planet, even they could one day be threatened by climate change. This past summer was the warmest on record in Svalbard. And a few years back, water seeped into the vault and scientists have since made all the tunnels waterproof. Fowler says, if we're going to have a vault to hold some of the most precious resources on Earth, Svalbard is about as good as it can get. And so for now, those seeds are sitting in the vault, waiting for us to need them. 
someday, we will. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a one-month extended free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device with new videos added every week. To start your free one-month trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.